Hello and welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tumpelman, a historian and screenwriter. I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant for film and television. And Hannah, we've got a very exciting applicant to join the History Film Club today. Welcome to Helen Carr. Helen is the author of the best-selling The Red Prince, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, which was published in spring of 2021 and listed in several best books of 2021 lists. And she's also, this year, the co-author and editor of What is History Now? Um, a follow-up to What is History, which many of you probably have had to study at school and university, by her great-grandfather, the historian E.H. Carr. And having done two books this year, I also imagine Helen is very tired. Welcome, Helen. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Um, how are you doing at the moment? Having, you know, a, two books in a year, this is a lot for anybody. Two books in a year and children, yeah. I'm feeling pretty tired and I'm also <laughs> just sort of um, battling. I think most parents are battling the kind of constant waves of colds that are coming through the household at the moment and, and various rounds of PCR testing. So that's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, Helen, I'm really looking forward to reading What is History Now, which I haven't got my hands on yet, but I will, because it sort of engages with how history is used in the, in the present, isn't it? And um, it does seem like the medieval period is having a bit of a moment on film at the moment. There seems to be an awful lot coming out onto screen that's set um, in medieval England. Um, why do you think that is? I have absolutely no idea. It feels like um, buses, you know, two movies in literally within the 14th century come around probably once in a lifetime and they've two movies in the 14th century have come, come to, out together in the space of what, I think, two months or something. So it's quite extraordinary, and I felt um, I've felt quite spoiled actually because it's that point. It's that point as a historian where you can point at the screen and go, "Well, that's wrong," or um, you know, <laughs> or actually know know the context. And uh, yeah, so I've really enjoyed it. I don't know if my husband, who's been watching them with me, has enjoyed it quite so much. But um... can we start with the Green Knight, which um, sort of was delayed a fair bit from opening this summer, and then sort of finally yeah. has, and it's been in cinemas and also on Amazon Prime for anyone who wants to watch it. So this, I mean, you know, this is where we get into a kind of controversial genre of historical fantasy, isn't it? Mm, um, but mm. the fantasy here is really quite medieval in its inflection. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's had really mixed reviews, hasn't it? I don't know if you've seen it um, yet or not yeah. um, and what, what you thought of it. But I think if you have an understanding of the context of it, I'm not saying that you have to, to enjoy it, but if you do have an understanding of the context um, and of the the original form of it as a, as a, as a long poem, um, I really enjoyed it. And I thought that it was true to the, to the poem, it was true to the style of medieval storytelling. And um, it was, it was eerie, it was dark, it was eerie, and it played into that, all the myths and magic of the Arthurian legends that were so popular during the 14th century and afterwards, really. And is there kind of, I mean, because, you know, people are often very concerned about historical accuracy, but if we're, you know, if we're looking at this, it's kind of a complex thing to talk about accuracy. There's kind of levels of what this, how this engages. And, you know, it's obviously not really accurate because <laughs> this was a medieval story, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there was no Green Knight, sorry, spoilers. Um, you know, <laughs> there's quite a lot, a heavy degree of fantasy in it. But is there a way in which the film is potentially then quite true to the medieval imagination? Yeah, I think, there, I think, I think so. I think, um, 
you know the the lyricism of it, it I think I, I feel like it was played out in the same manner as the poem and it had the as, as poet laureate Simon Armitage calls it the Weston Wayne and it really sticks to that it's true to that form um, and it is true to the this the darkness and the fantasy that inspired people in this in this period I mean the unknown poet the unknown poet um, was writing around the same time as Chaucer we don't know who who it was, um, but they were feeding into this interest and fascination around Arthur and the Arthurian legend. And it was originally meant to be orated. So you have to imagine like a, um, a family, a household crowded round, possibly in a castle, possibly in a great house, um, to listen to somebody perform this poem. And we think that it was actually performed around Christmas, which is when the story is set. And that is actually how, how the how the movie and how the poem opens as well. You know, you're you're in Camelot at Christmas time. Um, so I think that that is, I think that's done successfully. And there are, you know, if you're thinking about accuracies, of course, there aren't going to be literal accuracies. But I think that where there could be accuracies, I think that there were. So, for example, there's a very strong Cheshire, not quite Welsh accent in the lead figures, particularly in the characters of, um, of King Arthur and even his Queen Guinevere. And this is a nod to the fact that we think that the poem originated in around Cheshire, um, probably on the borders of Wales, and maybe even um, the suggestion that Arthur himself originated from even Wales or around that, that sort of area. Um, and then I think later on, as you move into the movie, there are scenes where Gawain is going on his intrepid journey and he's traveling through the landscape to meet his fate with the Green Knight. Um, and there's a scene where, and I'm, uh, are we okay to do spoilers, by the way? Well, as long as we flag them up. <laughs> okay, right. So spoiler, spoiler. There is a scene where he's he's riding through this sort of mud-soaked battlefield and he meets this sort of really weird manic scavenger who's scouring for loot. And there's obviously been a battle that's just taken place there. And um, he tries to take take money from Gawain. He can see that he's a knight. He can see that he's or he would be knight. He's he's a wealthy nobleman. Um, so he tries to to trick him into into giving him giving him his goods, giving him money. And that scene itself is, I think, incredibly accurate to what the realities of of fourteenth century life. You know, you're a rider traveling alone, and if especially if you're a member of the nobility, that's quite a dangerous thing to do traveling alone like that because you're quite you're, you're noticed if you're wearing um you know fine clothing and you are a target for these scavengers and also being the scavenger himself after the battlefield that was certainly the case people would come onto the battlefield and take whatever they could from the corpses that were lying there you know you wouldn't just sort of leave swords and um and and daggers or even you know male armour, you wouldn't leave that on the battlefield to, to rot away, it was, it was hot property. It's so good to hear you talk about it, Helen, because it makes me realise that I think I probably need an expert to hold my hand when I'm watching it, <laughs> like you need that kind of insight and and, and close knowledge, because I, I watched a bit of it last night, I haven't finished it yet, and I was watching it very late at night on my own, and I just found it so eerie and sort of unsettling that, mm. um, and difficult that I just couldn't finish it on my own, I was going to come back to it later. Um, so it feels like you need that level of expertise, like a real historian's insight to really understand its its lyricism. Yeah, and I think there are also, you know, it's the, the whole, the cult around Arthur is very mythical in itself. And I think it really does also draw on other medieval myths. So there is the 
um, another another spoiler. There is the a myth around <laughs> Saint um, the Lady in White called Saint Winifred. So the story of Saint Winifred is quite a tragic one, and she was and it was celebrated around the twelfth century again in in Wales. And according to legend, the daughter of a Welsh nobleman was beheaded by her betrothed um, when she decided to become a nun. In the original legend, um, her head was restored by uh, Saint Benro. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But um, here we see these two legends join together because it's actually Gawain who um, restores her head to her corpse. And in the movie, he meets her in this super creepy house by the side of like a smoking lake. And I can imagine Hannah watching that on your own. <laughs> I'm not really good at those kind of films anyway, like, to be honest. It's like headless white woman. But um, oh. it's, you know, it is a she was she was later um canonized for um for her, her her tragic death. Um so there is like a real play on this sort of life death sequence throughout the, the film and drawing uh consistently drawing myth and legend within you know within that talking animals giants that sort of thing yeah I mean I think it's as you say the films have quite a sort of mixed response and I'm interested in that I mean you know I, I I will admit that I did not hugely take to this movie but actually I think it's much more interesting hearing you talk about it is making me kind of see it in a more interesting yeah. way it was, um, it was incredibly I, creatively done I think Oh yeah, I mean, it looks amazing. Like mm, the, mm. it's totally beautiful, and I think they've done such wonderful research into the art and look of the period. You know, did you which... notice the circularity of it? So there's a real circular theme within it. So I, I did because I read it in that. your article, but I would love <laughs> yes. you to explain that for our listeners because I thought that yeah. is an amazing point. Yeah, this is something I noticed, and I thought that this was very clever, and I think that um, Lowry. I keep wanting to call him. Um, it is David Lowry because I get yes. confused between the artist. So <laughs> the idea of it being not LS circular, Lowry, no. <laughs> no, it's not LS Lowry, David Lowry. Um, so you have this turning wheel which depicts the seasons, which is supposed to um, demonstrate how far the year is going. Because the idea is that um, the Green Knight sets this challenge for Gawain at the beginning at Christmas, and he says. Um, a year hence, I think it's a year hence. Um, sorry, I haven't seen the movie for a while. It was a year <laughs> hence. You're, he was supposed to meet him. So literally, a year to the to the day, Christmas Day, he's supposed to meet him, and they are supposed to. Um, he's supposed to return this beheading game. Um, so this wheel d- demonstrates the movement of time within the film, and it continues throughout. So, beginning with the design of the king's crown. Um, to the landscape itself, you know, the camera literally pans in like a circular mo- a circular motion. And it's a, I think it's a really creative acknowledgement of medieval life because circularity was, was certainly a common theme in the Middle Ages. And a little bit, I suppose, how we are today, you know, you're dictated by this repetitive cycle of time. So if you think of you know, the seasons, um, the clock, it, and, and in the Middle Ages, this was, also ritualized through liturgical practice, um, through through seasonal change with farming and produce, and even dance. If you think of the, um, you know, the, the the maypole, so you're like dancing in a circle, and you'd be um, celebrating seasonal change by cir- dancing in a circle. And as as the wheel spins through the seasons, Gawain comes closer and closer to his fate. Um, so I think that idea of circularity and never being able to break the cycle I think is is interesting and I think that 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 nod to 
the importance of circularity in, in medieval life was was clever. In, in your explanation, it sounds like it's a film that is not afraid to see the past is very distant from us. You know, there's always this temptation that we need to be drawn into a story um, and to understand it with things that are, that are familiar and similar. But this sounds like it's a film that's happy to see the medieval way of thinking, of the imagination, of writing, of seeing the world is very different to us. And um, and that's always a very valuable thing, I think, in the film. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be magical. And I think going back to this idea of it being orated, that is, you know, I all I imagine it that this, you, this is somebody performing this standing in a dark room, you know, room lit by candles, by a fire, it's Christmas, everybody's gathered around to listen to the story. This is, the it's going into the imagination, right? It's really kind of playing on people's imagination rather than, you know, today we're, we see so many images. I, I, I believe that apparently in one day we see more images than a person in the Middle Ages would have seen in their entire lifetime. So we yeah. see images the whole time. We're kind of, you know, over our sensory overload. We're sort of overstimulated by images constantly. And I think this feeds into the imagination of the people who were originally listening to this. And what were they thinking? What were they creating in their mindset? And there was a lot of fear in this period as well. You know, thinking about myths and monsters and anything that is... I suppose hellish or demonic that's incredibly fearful for people who are god-fearing folk so it does play into that especially as you know as I just talked about with that scene with the um with the story of St Winifred um I think the reason we see it as quite and maybe people have interpreted it as quite as quite odd and um I suppose quite dark it's just super imaginative I think, and I think that it, that nod to the imagination and the reconstruction of 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 words in your head and as into pictures. I think it. I'm probably explaining this really badly, but I think that it it plays into that original mode of communicating the story. Well, I think you're explaining it very well because I'm now wondering if I've been too hard on it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, making it sound a lot more interesting. I did also. Again, we're not going to do too many spoilers, but I liked the fox. I love the fox. I love. There was a point sweet. where I thought the fox was going to get killed, and I'm, you know, I'm. I love animals, and I was like, Me I can't. Too. I just don't think I like this. I can't watch it if the fox. I gets know. The fox was okay. Yes, <laughs> I'm happy to say that too. That's a that's a spoiler in a good way. Um, yeah. Don't worry, no foxes <laughs> are murdered in this film, which is good because I was also seriously worried about that <laughs> yeah. number of points. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, no, and it is incredibly beautifully made. And yeah, well, anyway, so I mean, you know, I do think that it's an interesting take on it to see it within this it's kind an of interesting medieval take, worldview. Definitely, but I also think it 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 nods to a much wider theme as well which is demonstrated within the Arthurian cult and the interest in Arthur but this being written in the later part of the 14th century and this is something that I think um, comes through the poem certainly is this nod to honour and chivalry and and uh, and duty and valour and Gawain is faced with quite a um, quite a bleak fate really I mean he is the story being the Green Knight rides into the hall of Camelot at the beginning on Christmas Day and says he wants to play this this game, a beheading game. 
So he challenges a knight to come and behead him, and Gawain takes up the challenge, and he's like, right, fine, and he beheads the knight. The knight then collects his head, and he says, one year hence, he will meet him at the Green Chapel, where he will return the blow. So it encapsulates these 14th century attitudes to martial and chivalric law, and Gawain trying to become a knight, a knighthood at this time was sort of no empty ceremony, it was a big deal. He thought this as an opportunity to prove himself, um, but you also get a sense of his fear and trepidation at the fact that this this green knight is going to return the blow and effectively try and behead him. So he, over that year, he take, goes on this journey to meet his fate, and he is honourable and he is brave, and it's all about courage and honour. And he's given opportunities to escape his fate, right, through magic. He's sort of given, you know, you, you won't be beheaded if you do this and etc. And so it really plays on the idea of the of the temptation of Gawain not to take that up and to be honourable and do the right knightly thing. And this was such a important part of medieval martial practice, knighthood and chivalry. It encapsulates certainly the first half of the 14th century. So I do think the Green Knight and the, and the poem, I think it does, it's, it sort of harks back to that, um, that sense of honour and chivalry in the, in the first half of the half of the century, around the time of the Hundred Years' War. We must be in some sort of chivalric mood, I think, because, of course, at the moment as well, in the cinemas, there's The Last Duel, which is set mm. in 14th century France, which I haven't seen yet. Um, but I think you have, haven't you, Helen? Yeah, yeah. And I loved it. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I've got a lot to say about it, but I did enjoy, I did enjoy it. So it was fun. Yeah. And it seems very different in tone to The Green Knight. Is that right? Mm. It's Ridley Scott epic. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. the kind of clash of steel... There's the mud, there's the sweat, there's the armour. There's some really interesting haircuts, I have to say. Matt Damon with a mullet isn't a great look. <laughs> well, can you, because I, mean, I haven't seen this yet either. So, I mean, I've certainly seen, like, from your piece on it, that uh, it's being pitched as a medieval Me Too. Mm. That gives us some kind of idea. But you've actually compared it rather more elevatedly to Rashomon. Yeah, mm. This is a story that we see from several different perspectives. So mm. what's the kind of core of it? So it's all based around an event, which is the alleged rape of the wife of a knight. So that it's, you've got three main characters. Um, you've got Jean de Carouge, who is played by Matt Damon. Jacques Legree, so Carouge is a knight, Jacques Legree is a squire. And then the, the wife of Jean de Carouge, um, Marguerite, who is played by Jodie Comer. And Adam Driver plays uh, Jacques Legree. Mm. So... It's the alleged rape of Marguerite, and she accuses Jacques Legree of, of raping her, who is the friend, like frenemy, let's call him a frenemy, of Jean de Carouge. And they're, or they've already got some kind of beef going on by the time this um, rape, alleged rape, takes place. And so it begins at the start of the duel. So you've got these two men facing each other um, in the list. And they are literally about, and the list is the the the, the um, st st stadium, I suppose, where the joust is about to take place. It's like you're sort of horses opposite each other, about to strike, and so it starts there, and then it goes back, and it starts uh, with the version from Jean de Carouge as to what happens, then it goes to the uh, version of Jacques Legree, and then from his perspective, and then it goes from to the perspective of Marguerite, um, played the, the Jodie Comer perspective. Um, so it's literally the same 
events that happen, but you get different versions of it. So you are repeating certain um, scenes, but you're getting like a very different, uh, I suppose, different way of looking at it, which actually was really interesting if you think about it from, it must be from an actor's perspective, that must have been very interesting to do and fun to, fun to do because you're replaying a scene from a very different angle as to how you play it, you know, in the former one. Um, so, for example, from the perspective of Jacques Legree, Marguerite is flirting with him. She's being very suggestive. Um, she's initiating sex, whereas from Marguerite's perspective, she's not at all. So you're, uh, it must have been, I, I can imagine, for Jodie Comer, quite, a, um, quite an interesting, interesting practice as an, act as an actor. Um, so you've got this, these three different perspectives, which is, I suppose, where you get, you get the sort of Russian one style. Um, and it begins with de Cruge, then it goes to Legree, and then, and then to Marguerite. And then at the end, it all comes together and you, they all meet in, in one and you're kind of left with this who's telling the right side of the story view. Although I think it's pretty clear. So this is, this is based on a true story then? Yeah, it's based on a true story um, and it took place in 1386. I want to say 1386. Yeah, you're right. I've just looked that uh -huh. up. Yep. Okay. So it took place in 1386. Um, but I but I believe that there was animosity between these two men who were originally friends as um, before the event took place. So it's this sort of growing tension between them and a little bit of a power play, a power struggle. I mean, the whole thing is really a, is a power struggle um, between these two no, two members of the nobility. Um, and, you know, you've got Matt Damon, Jean de Carouge, he's this sort of like gruff, battle-hardened knight with the mullet and he's got lots of scars on him <laughs> and he's supposed to come across as just sort of, just a bit, just loves a punch-up, <laughs> kind of basically. <laughs> and um, he's that guy. And then you get Adam Driver, who's Jacques Legree, who's this, he's, he's supposed to be quite attractive. There's commentary from um, car other characters within the, within the course of the movie, sort of uh, commenting on his looks and his, um, he's a bit of a libertine. He's educated. There's a nod to the fact that he was supposed to go into the church at one point, so he can speak, he can translate Latin. Um, and in his in his perspective, he is interested by Marguerite's knowledge and her interest in reading and books. And he sort of cr tries to create this bond between them um, through their mutual intellect. Um, and then Marguerite is she plays, I suppose, quite accurately, a young, very young uh, woman. You get a sense that she's much younger than Jean de Carouge when she is, um, yeah, I mean, effectively sold into, into marriage to him. So Jean de Carouge uh, is, has already been married before, so she's, playing, she's his, his second wife. And really the expectation of her, like it was for all medieval women, especially the nobility, was to have children. So over five years of marriage, the no child is conceived and everything starts to turn a little bit sour for her and she gets all of these sort of pointed comments from her mother-in-law who lives with them which was quite common you know um the mother of, of, of one's husband would often live in your household which i think most people would be quite sort of <laughs> turned off right now right now like can you imagine um and 
I probably should cut that out in case my mother-in-law listens to it. <laughs> <laughs> Alex can even out by saying something about her mother-in-law. Uh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mine's really nice, actually. That is quite a blameless situation. But yeah, it's. I, I think certainly, though, I mean, you know, let's talk a bit about styling. As you say, poor old Matt Damon, not only in a mullet, but a neck beard as well. Mm. I mean, they really <laughs> ugly him up. I mean, you know, and he is actually, I think Matt Damon really is, actually an extremely good actor I think he's often a bit underrated I think but, I thought um, in this he was it was probably one of the best things I've seen him in actually I think he was very yeah. good I think he's he is good he um he improves things he's in but you know up against Adam Driver looking about as hunky as possible so they mm. certainly um yeah. you know they certainly kind of dress them but I mean did did anyone have a mullet in the medieval period is this is this a haircut <laughs> we can countenance I don't, neck beards not... yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, I think actually, especially in the nobility, I don't. I mean, I've never seen anything that would look like a mullet. <laughs> I think in the 14th century, men had slightly, certainly had some longer hair. There was there was a trend in the 15th century for having the the Henry V bowl cut. Oh yeah, that's not, not a, again not a good look. That's not no. something that you'd see many men sporting today. <laughs> presumably, that his mullet is a device to make sure that we don't want to side with him. That he's or. Mm. I don't know. I haven't yeah, seen I it think... yet. I, I have I have some concerns about it, and I haven't seen it yet. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's probably to. I think it's it's. I think it's to be meant to make him look as aggressive, and as battle hardened as possible, mm-hmm. but also to create quite a definitive contrast to Jacques Legree as this very groomed, attractive libertine. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, that's what it looks like, isn't it? I mean, I also haven't seen it yet, but yes, it looks like a very clear. Let's ugly this one up as much as possible <laughs> and send this one to a salon. Um, mm. to get... <laughs> but yeah, I mean, well, I mean, so this film kind of in terms of now, as you say, you know, it's based on a real story and all of that. But clearly people are seeing this very, very contemporary resonance with mm. me, too, and so on. I mean, well, how do you feel about back projecting these kind of is it back projecting these values on the medieval period or is there a sort of truth to these kind of reactions i think you know i'm i'm hesitant to say that we can impose any of our values onto the past because it's you know we can do that in the in the present and we can but i don't think we can say well this must the 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 views around this must have been the same as what they were the same then as what they are now because that certainly wasn't the case i think what is remarkable is the fact that marguerite did um, stand up and say, I have been raped. I think that mm. is quite extraordinary because there is a there is a moment in the movie where her, I think her mother-in-law, played by Harriet Walter, who's brilliant, she says, I was also raped. Do you know, you deny it, you deny, deny this is what happens to women. And I think rape in this period, and I certainly in former periods and periods thereafter, it was a war, it was a part of war, it was a method of war, it was a method of conducting atrocities upon the civilians and the, you know, and, and, the, and the nobility who were involved in, in war and battle. It was, I suppose, a, a crime of war. And, you know, when you're looking at the sources, particularly as I have for the Hundred Years' War, it's constantly examples of of, of rape and women being um, known carnally, etc., by by men, 
by soldiers. So it was, I think the, the idea that this was a common thing is certainly true. Um, but I think what is remarkable is the fact historically that Marguerite was not willing to accept it. And she did, she did push her case forward. And I think that within the course of the film, I think that that is, I don't think that is dealt with, with enough. I think her character and her strength of character would have had to be quite something in order to go against what is a deeply misogynistic society. If that explains that answer correctly. Does the film explain why it's the last duel? Because I was only reading around it, but it's the last legal duel, isn't it, in France at the time? And yeah. Is there is there some is there something about the nature of the case and the incident that makes it the last one, or is is that not explained in the film, or maybe that's not that's that's part not of explained it? in the film? But you're right; it is the last legally sanctioned duel. But as we know. The jewels continued constantly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious Following though that. why it was the last one. Why it was the last legally sanctioned. It was the last legally something... sanctioned duel to the death. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. But you know, you can't get the last legally sanctioned duel to the death on a poster. No. Let's be honest. No, but it is the more interesting <laughs> historical title for me. Yeah. <laughs> this is why we shouldn't be in charge of these. Things. This is why I'm not a filmmaker or an advertiser or anyone involved. But in it's the interesting that that was the last one in France because it was like a decade later in England that you obviously had the duel, which is immortalised by Shakespeare in Richard II yeah. between Thomas Mowbray and Henry Bolingbroke. Yeah. And that was certainly would have been to the death had it been allowed to go ahead. So this is an interesting question as to why that was the last legally sanctioned duel in um, in France. The King of France at the time, Charles VI, he was played quite funny actually. It was quite funny. He was played this giggling teenager who was just a little bit out of it. And I, I think that sort of is a nod to obviously Charles VI being the king that thought he was made of glass <laughs> later on. So um, I think they were trying to kind of crowbar these references in. Um, you know, well, it seems like they've done some homework, though, to try. Yeah, if, you, if you can find those, if you can find those elements, elements in the film, then it. But it's interesting how different it sounds to the Green Knight, where one is this kind of fantasy and myth, and yeah. the other is attempting to kind of ground it in a more, in a realism of some form, and and yet they're sort of broadly the same sort of you know historical moments, aren't they? But totally different yeah. visions of society and the world. Um, yeah. So that yeah. is kind of that is interesting. Um, I saw one interview, sorry, with a director or someone who said, well, actually, one of the writers, and they said they'd been surprised when they went on set that it was so dank and muddy because they'd imagined this kind of courtly world. And I think someone in the production said it was because people lived close to the ground in medieval times. <laughs> so so they, they wanted to, they wanted to capture this element of everyone being like closer to the ground somehow. It's like, oh, it's an interesting thing, artistic idea. <laughs> so, one thing that struck me was it was snowing all the time. But I think <laughs> Well, I was like, before climate change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I know that there was the mini ice age in the 14th century. There was yeah. not a mini ice age in the 14th century, but I thought it was a little extreme to depict it as snowing all the time. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I don't know. It could be, however, it could be because the event itself took place in January. And um, I suppose they just wanted to reference the fact that it, they were repeating the fact this 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 yeah. event, yeah. but it was snowing a lot. Also, so maybe it cost they just them a bought, fortune in yeah. uh, fake snow. 
I was going to say they bought a big snow machine and they wanted to use it. Yeah, yeah exactly. They didn't remember to turn it off again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you, Helen. Um, we would love also to ask you, we ask all our applicants to the History Film Club um, to nominate a favourite film or TV production to add to our club library. And I was wondering what you would like to nominate. Oh, my absolute favourite is um, A Knight's Tale. Yay! Oh, oh yeah. Heath Ledger. <laughs> Whatever you say about Batman, A Knight's Tale is Heath Ledger at his finest. Yeah, we've, we've, I totally agree. That's come up a few times in our conversations. We all love that, I think. Is it in the library yet? I'm not sure. But, um, well, I don't know, but it certainly should be. And I think we'll have to put it there. But perhaps, you know, if, if any of our listeners, you know, haven't seen it, I mean, first of all, incredible oversight. Please go and fix it. But Helen, what about it is so great? What should they go and see it for? Just, I love it for the anachronisms. Like, I just think... <laughs> It's just done brilliantly. I just, I love the dance, you know, and they like um, make his his jerkin out of a, <laughs> out of, he's got his, his I suppose his manservant, his, his manservant, his, his valet sort of sewing a um, jerkin for him, which is like a, um, I suppose like a, you know, sh- I wouldn't say a shirt. I can't even. I can't even really describe it in contemporary. Like, um, like a body warmer. Like a body, like a long, like a, long, like a body warmer yeah. slash dress. <laughs> body warmer slash dress. So yeah, like he's sewing his jerkin out of the uh, the material from his tent. I love that, and he uses like toggles as the buttons, and I think that's hilarious. Um, that and they, they go and do this ballroom dance scene and they start it becomes like a slightly clubby like drum and bassy type sort of <laughs> <laughs> and they all start dancing in the hair of his um the uh, the lover his love interest she's got this real noughties like early noughties kind of do you remember when you used to go to claire's accessories or wherever and you used to get those clip-in bits of pink hair <laughs> yeah, i'm yeah. sure i do <laughs> Oh, the hen night years. Yeah. yeah. And she's got, and it's like, she's got that real kind of like spiky, like it's real early bewitched. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where she's got the like flecks of like colourful hair. And um, yeah, it's a, I, I just think that's hilarious. But no the mullets. There aren't any no mullets. mullets. Are there? No, no mullets. Heath Ledger has fantastic hair. Yeah. Yeah. And, really good um, hair. Paul Bettany as Geoffrey Chaucer, who spends most of the movie naked, I think is hilarious. He's brilliant. <laughs> I love the I... fact that they portray Chaucer as a, a gambling addict and a drunk. <laughs> That's quite funny. Not sure how Chaucer would feel about that. Um, but yeah, I think The Knight's Tale for me is just wonderful. I think given how Chaucer portrayed various of the people he wrote about, he wouldn't have much of a leg to stand on to, quite honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so the recipe for, successful... out. <laughs> um, yeah, recipe for successful film is a trip to Claire's accessory for your props and yeah. a naked Chaucer. <laughs> <laughs> And I think one of the reasons, though, that loads of historians and history fans love this film is that, first of all, you know, the anachronisms are so wittily done, but actually that there is quite a bit of research underlying some of them. You know, there are in-jokes about Chaucer. There are in-jokes, and there is certainly some research because his, um, you know, his enemy within this play by the wonderful Rufus Sewell, who is, I mean, his eyes, I mean, there's nobody Mm. who's got eyes like Rufus Sewell. He's fantastic. And... His character is um, based on a character called uh, Eustace Duobeshikor, who is the leader of the Free Companies, who was this freebooter in the 14th century and used to basically um, answer to nobody and led um, vagrant soldiers through France 
and they were effectively mercenaries but they just used to they they just used to sort of cause anarchy through france these i suppose lawless soldiers and he led them and he's played by rufus Sewell with a different with a different name but there's definitely a nod to that as him as the leader of the free companies and also quite accurately he has to go off to to fight um at poitiers and I'm not sure if Eustace Tervershko did actually fight at Poitiers, but it was certainly true that he would have been paid as a as a mercenary soldier to come in and and aid the English or aid the Black Prince at at the battle. So I thought that was you know they had done their research, they'd got this genuine character and based it yeah. on a real yeah. character of his, historical significance. Plus, I mean, what an exciting character! <laughs> you got, yeah, you got some real cards in history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the Knight's Tale, I think, is in. It's going to come in yeah. the library. And then, Helen, we also ask our applicants uh, to let us know if they have any pet hates or something that we should ban from the club. Is there anything that annoys you we should stay clear of? I'm thinking particularly in the from films based in the medieval period, and that is the sort of this common trope of these slightly pathetic women. And that really annoys me because it's, you know, you think of all of these princesses who have their lovely long hair and dresses, and they're sort of they're so powerless in these movies. And I know that women in the Middle Ages weren't necessarily powerful with their autonomy in order, you know, they can, but there were so many, they had so much strength as well. And they actually did have a huge amount of say and, and voice. And I think, mm. you know, there is a howling echo in the archives for women. And I think movies mm. are a great opportunity to give them some character and give them some gumption and just to portray these women with a little more gusto than than, it, than is, is done. And I actually, I think that was my takeaway for The Last Jewel is that you have this real opportunity with a character like Marguerite to do that because she obviously had extraordinary courage to come forward mm. and say, I have been raped by this man and I'm going to go to, um, I'm going to fight this and, and, you know, say that this has happened to me and, and take it all the way to the top you know to the to the to the king's court and i just felt like it was she was just still a little bit pathetic in a way and i just think that um that's something i see a lot it, with the female characters in in these movies i mean even in my beloved knight's tale you know yeah love interest was, was just a bit pathetic and actually love i think interests. he could have just say what you could say you could do so much more with these quite extraordinary female characters and you know just because they're not literally duelling on battlefields or clashing it's, yeah. swords yeah, until it's it doesn't not a queen, mean that it's powerful. hard for people to yeah understand the, the nature week, of power the one weak link in the knight's tale is indeed the lead female character and oh, she's dreadful isn't it's she? so annoying because you just think they just underwritten her and the blacksmith is right there i know you should just go off with the blacksmith anyway she's way better she's so much better written just yeah. go with her but yeah i mean yeah, yeah. On the other hand, coloured hair extensions. So, you know, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, I, well, we can't entirely probably ban pathetic women, but I think we can certainly ban pathetically women, written women. Yeah, pathetically written women. You know, yeah. for goodness sake. I mean, And also gaps in the archive being the excuse for saying yeah. that women don't I have really a character agree. because some um, it should be the opposite. Yeah, And, it, you know, ultimately historical films are always for today. I mean, nobody medieval is going to watch them, so it doesn't really matter what they thought. It matters what we <laughs> think. <laughs> And, you know, we want to see some women who are properly written. Um, I mean, on that note, employ more female writers. Yeah, <laughs> Just yeah. saying. That tends to help. 
but yes, okay, well, I think I think you definitely ban them. Um, well, on that basis, Helen Carr, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you as a new member of the History Film Club. Woo, you're in! Hey. You round of applause over here. Um, we do love to give all our new members a drink from the club bar. Uh, the History Film Club bar can make any drink, historical or modern, um, alcoholic or nice and soft. Uh, completely depends what you're up for. What can I get you? Oh, it'd have to be um, a dirty martini. Oh, Me, middling perfect. dirty. Yeah, middling dirty. I'm very boring when it comes to my tasting cocktails. I'm basically at a, either a vodka dirty martini or a Negroni, but I'm going to go with a vodka dirty martini for this. I think that's extremely classy and lovely, and I'm sure the medievals <laughs> would have loved it if they could have got their hands on one of those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it would have been the dank martini. Would have been yes. <laughs> Scooped out of a pond or something. Or <laughs> A muddy martini. You're probably expecting me to say something like, I will have um, some kind of mead, wine, yeah. mead or wine from Gascony or something like that. No. No. no, forget that. No, we're very much the martini sort of a club. <laughs> Wonderful. We will serve up. One I'll of take those. the history, I'll leave the food. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so sensible. <laughs> thank you ever so much for joining us at the History Film Club, Helen Carr, and thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the History Film Club with Alex von Tunselman, Hannah Gregg, and Helen Carr. It was produced by Nat Tatley, and the assistant producer is Abby Robinson. If you'd like to join the History Film Club, go to www.patreon.com forward slash History Film Club. <laughs> <laughs>